so good to see you, and I want to invite you to John chapter 12, where we'll spend our meditation and worship under the Word this morning. And while you're finding that place, I've got to just mention uh, what a remarkable joy uh, to hear Catherine's testimony, somebody I've known since she was a young girl, and how the Lord's brought her not only to Memphis, but to Grace Church. And most of all, the faith in Christ. I'm so looking forward to her covenant affirmation in a moment and Jay's baptism. Uh, the picture of the gospel and what that young man and that family mean to me and to our church family. Uh, it's a day of special joy. And then I was on the verge of tears as dad was choking back tears, baptizing his son. And I look up and Mitch and Laura are walking in. And I about lost it. So uh, it's a blessed, blessed day. We're glad to see all of you. For those who don't know, uh, be in prayer continually for, for Mitch, uh, who's trusting the Lord with his life. He has some pretty significant health situations going on. So make it your business to be a prayer warrior for them. Well, we've got a covenant affirmation and a Lord's Supper. So you're going to have to pray real hard because it is such a good passage. It's so pivotal uh, in the Gospel of John. It's pivotal in the history of redemption. Before we read it, let me just try to draw your heart and mind in to what I believe the Lord mainly wants us to see. I'll do it this way. If I passed around the microphone and said, tell us a time when you or somebody you know has said, this is what I've been waiting for my whole life. Well, maybe right off the cuff, you can't think of an example like that, so let me just prime the pump a little bit. I remember when our two oldest daughters were young, four or five years old, maybe six years old, and one of them on Christmas Eve night said, I've been waiting for this my whole life. <laughs> um, you may be a devoted sports fan and have earned it honestly from your parents and grandparents. And your hapless team has only given you misery since before your grandparents were born. And then you lived like the cubbies here in the room to see them finally win the series. I've waited for this my whole life. Maybe an elated couple waking up the morning of their wedding day and knowing up until that point they've been waiting for this their, their whole life. We all have moments that to us are huge. And we look forward to whatever our great anticipations are with, with great joy do you know that Jesus was the same way? That there was a day in his life when he essentially said, this is it. It was as close to and I've waited for this my whole life as Jesus ever uttered. It's in today's passage. And here Jesus indicates an expression of something monumental is taking place. Now over the course of the next three Sundays, counting today, 
We're going to look at the last 30 verses of John chapter 12. I want to encourage you to take those 30 verses, verses 20 to 50 of John 12, as your meeting place or one of your meeting places with the Lord over the next few weeks. Pitch your tent there, morning after morning, evening after evening, and spend time with Jesus. Today we'll look at verses 20 to 36, Lord willing, 37 to 43. Next Sunday, which take us back 700 years before Jesus was born. And then two weeks from today, Lord willing, we'll finish chapter 12 in verses 44 to 50, where Jesus emphasizes that God alone has the power to command eternal life. Well, let's look at verse 20 through 36. I'm reading from the New American Standard. Open your heart with prayer and hear the voice of God. John 12, verse 20. Now, there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus, verse 23, and Jesus answered them, saying, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Verse 27, now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. And others were saying an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. The crowd then answered him, we have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, for a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and he went away and hid himself from them. Join me at the throne of grace as we seek God's help to worship Him in light of this passage. Father, we do ask that You would help us to see 
what you mean for us to see, understand, and apply in this passage, that nobody would be able to avoid what you mean to say in this text. You inspired it through John. You know why we have it, and we ask that you would unlock to us the very open secret of what you are saying in these very plain words. Give us help, Lord. We can't get there on our own. We're not good at understanding the Bible by ourselves. We cannot do that. We need the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit who inspired these words. Help us to see Jesus through this window of John 12. We ask in His name. Amen. There are three ways I want to get at this passage. First, starting in verses 20 to 22. And then we'll move to two other parts of the, the passage. But the first thing I want you to see is why I would introduce the sermon with, this is it. This is the moment I've been waiting for. And our first point is this, Jesus is the worldwide Savior. That's verses 20 to 22. The reason I introduced our text as the pivotal moment in the earthly life and ministry of the Lord Jesus is because of what verses really 20 to 23 have to say to us. This is the first time in John's Gospel that anyone outside of the Jewish people come to Jesus. Now, you could find some periphery passages that may poke holes in what I just said, but I mean as a dominating trajectory, this is the first time that other than the Jewish ethnicity, someone is coming to Jesus. It's in Verse 20, and John calls them some Greeks, meaning Gentiles. I mean, there's some debate about whether they're Greek-speaking Jews, but as we continue to read the passage, it seems that these people who say to Philip, we would like to see Jesus, who John calls some Greeks in verse 20, are non-Jewish peoples, aka Gentiles. And for those of us who are already lost, let me bring us all in. If you're trying to remember who Gentiles are in the Bible, that's anybody who's not ethnically Jewish, which I presume is many, if not all, of the people in the room today. A Gentile is a non-Jewish person, so in short, we could say that our sermon text is about a time in the life and ministry of Jesus when the nations come to Him. And he knew then that it was time for him to go to the cross and die. Or as I've said, our first point is this, Jesus is the worldwide Savior. So let your eyes just look at verses 21 and 22. The Greeks who were among the worshipers at the feast, that is the feast of Passover. This is the third Passover in the ministry of Jesus. They came to Philip in these verses and say, said, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Before we dive into that request, notice that they came to Philip, and John makes a point to let us know where Philip is from. There's two things I want to say about that. First, Philip is a Greek-based name, and second, Bethsaida of Galilee is a Gentile region of Galilee. So, it appears that these people, these Greeks, went to somebody that they were comfortable with to introduce them to Jesus. Now, I just want to ask you a question. Are you the kind of person that rank p- 
pagans would find comfortable to help introduce them to Jesus. That's what Philip was to these people. As for their specific request, though, sir, we wish to see Jesus, this is one of the best summaries of how everybody should have come to church today and every Lord's Day. Instead of wanting to be inebriated and intoxicated with entertainment when you come to church, or if you leave and say, you know, I didn't really get a lot out of the worship, I, I, I hope a lot of people would say, congratulations, we weren't worshiping you. Instead of wanting to be entertained or stirred up into an emotional frenzy, we should come to the Lord's house wanting above all things to see Jesus. Their request is probably less, can we get a look at him, and more, we have some very serious questions for him. We would like to inquire of him. We would like to have an audience with him so that we can ask him some really core messianic questions. Philip, we're told in verse 22, goes and gets Andrew. And one little note I want to say about Philip going to Andrew instead of going directly to Jesus is nearly every time Andrew appears in the Gospels, he's bringing people to Christ. So just like I asked you about Philip, and can rank pagans find you as the type of person who would help them come to Christ? Let me also ask, using the portrait of Andrew we have here yet again, bringing people to Jesus, is that the tenor and the tone of your life? Are you a midwife, a spiritual midwife who helps usher people into the presence of Christ? That's how Andrew is in Almost every time we find him in all four Gospels, he's just bringing people to Jesus. And so when Philip and Andrew bring this matter, or maybe these people, honestly, we don't know. Did Philip and Andrew go as a delegation on behalf of the Greeks, or did they bring the Greeks with them and everybody goes to Jesus? Honestly, we, we just don't know. So whether they bring the matter to Jesus or the people to Jesus, we find a massive turn in the Gospel of John in the next sentence. In fact, I would say it's the most significant narrative shift that has happened up to this point in John's Gospel. Instead of engaging with the Greeks about their question, John doesn't tell us anything about that interaction. Verse 23 tells us that Jesus begins unfolding the primary purpose for which he came from heaven to earth as the God-man. Perhaps the words of verse 23 are Jesus' response to these Greeks who were looking for him. Whether the them means the intermediaries, Philip and Andrew, or the Greeks, it's unclear, but what's clear is this, New American Commentary. What is clear, however, is that this verse marks a turning point in the Gospel of John for Jesus. Different commentator, same verse. This approach of the Greeks is for Jesus a kind of trigger, a signal of the climactic hour that has dawned. What does Jesus say in verse 23? The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So I have another question for you. 
I've asked you one about Philip and one about Andrew, and i got a, another question for you. What would lead careful, thoughtful, faithful, biblical scholars by the droves to conclude, quote, this approach of the Greeks is for Jesus a kind of trigger, a signal that the climactic hour have come, has come, or as I introduced, this is what I've been waiting for my whole life. What is it about that verse that would lead so many to agree, here's the shift in John's gospel? Well, the answer is in Jesus' use of that four-letter word, H-O-U-R, hour. The hour has come. What does that mean? Well, those who've been with us through our series on the gospel of John may remember that Jesus has used that phrase a lot before chapter 12. But it's always been future. When, when he turns the water to wine at his first miracle in Cana of Galilee, and his, his mom says to him before the miracle, they, they have no wine. Je Jesus says to her, what does that have to do with us? John chapter 2, my hour has not yet come. Or, or in John 7, when the people had issued a decree to kill Jesus. Why didn't they kill him in chapter 7? Why are we still reading about him in chapter 12? John 7, 30, his hour had not yet come. Uh, what about on another occasion when some people literally wanted to grab him and drag him to his murder, but somehow they were prevented from doing that? Well, why didn't they do that in chapter 8, verse 20? Quote, because his hour had not yet come. This is the first time, John 12, when Jesus declares, the hour has come. The hour to Jesus is unmistakably the gospel events of his passion. When we say Jesus' passion, we don't mean emotion. We mean his substitutionary death, his resurrection from the dead, his ascension to the Father's right hand, his being glorified. From our text, John 12 onward, Jesus says, it's time. The hour has come. You saw it in verse 23 in the beginning of the very next chapter, the first verse, John 13, 1, now before the feast of Passover, Jesus knowing that his hour had come. John 17 in Jesus' priestly prayer, he goes into the throne room of heaven, and in John 17, 1, he says, these things, uh, Jesus spoke these things, and lifting his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. In other words, it's time. And again, I'm underlining that, underlining that the reason Jesus turns toward the cross in our text for the first time in John's gospel is because I'm suggesting the nations are now coming to him. When the Greeks come, when somebody other than ethnic Israel and the Jewish people come, Jesus says it's time. The same author, John, wrote four additional books of the Bible, first, second, third John, and the book of Revelation five total. In one of his other 
biblical books, John said something so close. Here's how he put it. Jesus Himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. One thing we see in John chapter 12, and no God help me to say it clear, Jesus wants you. When the nations come, it's like an alarm clock, one scholar said, goes off in his heart and in his mind. Now's the time. In verse 23, he says, for the Son of Man to be glorified. He's hearkening back to old covenant passages and prophecies like the book of Daniel. And he's saying, I'm the mediator that sits on heaven's throne and brings people safely into fellowship with God forever. The Son of Man. And so what Jesus then does right after declaring it's time, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, he gives a mega mini sermon, two verses, verse 24 and 25, on the supernatural effect that his death will have on multitudes throughout the nations. His sermon has two points, eternity and time. In verse 24, he talks about the eternal effect of his death. And in verse 25, he talks about the temporal effect of his death. In verse 24, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. This is the eternal effect. This is the harvest that is produced by the seed of the life of Jesus going dead down into a tomb and sprouting up in resurrection victory, drawing people from all nations unto God. I mentioned a moment ago that John wrote several other books of the Bible. I just quoted from 1 John. Let me quote from another one. In the book of Revelation, John wrote that he could hear the chorus of heaven. He could hear people praising the lamb who was slain to take away our sin and make us right with God, the enthroned king of the universe, the Lord Jesus. And as he was able to listen in on the song of the redeemed, this is what he heard. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. This is the eternal effect. Jesus is saying when this seed goes down into the earth dead, it's going to come back again. Like the oak that is in the acorn, Jesus is going to produce fruit for God among all the peoples. That's Revelation 5, 9. But in Revelation 5 and in John 12, Jesus, uh, John has the same emphasis. It's not on who only, it's especially on how. Before we go to the temporal effect, in verse 25, I just want to take you into your grammar class for a, for a nanosecond, the, the English class that we were all having trouble staying awake in back in, in high school. There's no direct object in Revelation 5.9. I just read it to you a moment ago, but I actually misread it. it, it, it I said... Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Andra, men, there's no, there's no word for men in that verse. 
It's italicized in the New American Standard so that the translators are letting us know we're adding it for clarity so you can understand what's being said. But the emphasis is not on who, it's on how. You were slain and purchased for God with your blood from every nation. That's what Jesus is talking about in John chapter 12. Yes, there is a glorious secondary byproduct of the death of Jesus, namely fruit among all the nations. But the emphasis is not on who especially, but on how that he would die and that he would rise again as the slain lamb, purchasing with his blood from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. But I said there's a second point to his sermon. It's the temporal, the time effect, the lifetime before the eternity, which is coming for us all. That's in verse 25. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. Hates his life in this world? What does that mean? Is this asceticism? Is this being so masochistic and self-deteriorating and damaging and hate your life? What's he talking about? Well, this phrase is a Semitic idiom. It's a way of speaking that's accentuating deepest preference. When this grain of wheat, the Lord Jesus, falls into the earth dead, He's going to produce fruit among all the nations for God's glory. But He's also going to produce that fruit in time in causing all those who are the fruit of His gospel labors to most deeply prefer Christ even over themselves. In that sense, they hate their life. As I said, it's that Semitic idiom. It's not self-hatred. It's Christocentric, Jesus-centered preference. You want Him not as a means to an end to get you to heaven when you die. You want Him for time and eternity, which is heaven itself. It's similar to Jesus' command to take up your cross daily and follow Him. Self-denial on the daily. It's to live is Christ, to die is gain. There's so many passages like this. In light of God's mercy, we're to give our bodies as a living sacrifice. We have been, Galatians 2, crucified with Christ. Christ is our life, Colossians 3, and when He's revealed, we'll be revealed with Him. That's the, if you love your life and you're number one to yourself, you can't have Christ because you can't have two sons in your solar system. Jesus has to be the heliocentric center around which your whole life orbits. Christ, not self. That's the temporal of fruit of true salvation. So Jesus says, now the, tower, the time has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then he immediately begins speaking of the eternal and lifetime fruit in those who are bought with his self-sacrifice. Concerning the temporal effect, you guys are familiar with Jim Elliott's famous line that's so penetrating and so faithful. 
He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's what Jesus is speaking about in verse 25. It's Christ being your life, your all. Friends, there's no other way to displace self from the center than by beholding and embracing Christ by faith. You can't get rid of self just by saying no to self. You get rid of self by looking to one who is superior to Christ. That's why we say around here a lot that salvation is not only turning from your sin, and it is absolutely that. Repenting from your sin, confessing to God the wrong you have done or the right you should have done that you never did, that too is sin. And we are absolutely saying that that is part and parcel to salvation. Without repentance, there is no salvation. We are saying that. But the deepest, deepest aspect of repentance is not only turning from what you've done, it's turning from who you are. Self is the great rival to God in your life. And Jesus is saying, those who are the fruit of my gospel labors, they don't hang on to their life anymore. In fact, they have a Semitic idiom that they would use about their own lives. They hate it in compare to prizing Christ. This leads us to our second point, which is in verses 27 and 28, it's in many ways not only the heart of our passage, but the heart of the gospel of John. Not only is Jesus the worldwide Savior, the only exclusive Savior for all peoples, Jew and Gentile alike, but second, He is also the God-glorifying sacrifice. Let your eyes fall in verse 27 again, where Jesus speaks with great emotion and agony, now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Verses 27 and 28 are as clear an expression of the God-centeredness of the gospel as we have in all of Scripture, meaning the gospel of Jesus Christ is primarily about God and His glory. First, notice the emotion. Verse 27, Jesus is deeply vexed. Verse 27 has an extremely strong verb. Now my soul, the New American Standard says, has become troubled. One commentator said this word signifies revulsion, horror, anxiety, agitation. Now my soul is in horror, in trepidation, in dread, in anxiety, in revulsion. I am deeply agitated. In John's gospel, we do not find an account of the agonies of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating drops of blood beneath the shadow of the cross and the impending wrath that he would endure, praying, oh God, let this cup pass from me. We don't find that in John's gospel. But packed into this word is that same depth of agony and anguish of soul. And no sooner than the Lord of glory cries out, what should I say? I know it's time. I know the hour has come. The nations are on their way. And I am going to bear fruit for God across the whole planet for His glory. 
But what should I say? Should I say, Father, no. Save me from this hour. Is that the way I should pray? Don't let it happen. The cost is too great. And almost before he finishes the the prayer, the phrase, the hypothetical what if, he gives that strong adversative but. No, but for this purpose I came to this hour. This hour, as I've underlined, is none other than his being slaughtered as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I want you to look at it carefully in verse 28. I want you to see it for yourself. The first thought, the premier thought, the paramount thought in the mind of Jesus when it comes to the purpose of His death on the cross is, Father, glorify your name. Do you see it? Dear friends, this verse gives us so much rich theology, doctrine of God, and soteriology, doctrine of salvation, packed down into this tiny little statement. When Jesus thinks of the cross, His first thought is not you, but God. His preeminent thought, His driving motive, His modus operandi is the glorification of the name of His Father. That is paramount. In the Old Covenant, which Jesus knew oh so well, He knew that through prophets like Ezekiel, God had promised that He would do this monergistic, one party operating only, God doing the work, nobody else helping Him out. God would effect a new covenant. He would do it all by Himself and all for Himself. Jesus knew that when that time came, God would work to quote God, for my holy name, Ezekiel 36, 22 and following. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among your sight. That sounds like John 12. Here come the nations. And Jesus says, Do it all for your glory. So when Jesus resolutely declares that He came for the express purpose of dying on the cross, and Jesus exclaims that His primary objective is the glorification of God, He's encapsulating in that little phrase, Father, glorify Your name, all of God's new covenant promises that are spoken in passages like Ezekiel, which goes on to say, I didn't read, God promised in the new covenant, I'll give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit within you. I'll remove your heart of stone from your flesh. I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. I will cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe all my ordinances. That sounds exactly like what Jesus just said. That's why I believe that Jesus has in mind in his declaration, Father, glorify your name, that he's going to glorify God that way. He's going to save sinners in a way that exalts and extols the name of His Father. Can I just step out of all that deep end of the swimming pool and say to you, 
The good news of the gospel is not that God will agree to get excited about you if you will agree to get excited about Him. That's not good news. He will not become you-centered if you will agree to become God-centered. He's not an idolater. He's never broken the first commandment. He has no other gods before Himself. Even in salvation, He does it primarily for Himself. And until you can get glad that in redemption, Jesus has fundamentally restored honor to God, then you're going to be sorely tempted, if not guilty, of flipping the gospel on its head. Father, glorify your name. And in verse 28, a voice shouts from heaven, great idea. Do you see it? The Father responds audibly. The crowds even hear it. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. This is one of three times the Father speaks audibly from heaven to the Lord Jesus at his baptism. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. At the Mount of Transfiguration, this is my beloved Son. Listen to him. And right here in John 12, I have both glorified my name. I will glorify it again. I believe the statement means in the have, meaning the life and ministry, the incarnation of Jesus, God the Father was reaping for himself glory through the God-man, and he would continue to do so through his passion, his gospel labors. So here we go. We're almost to our third and final point. If you don't get anything else out of this sermon, I I wrote that line, erased it, wrote that line, erased it, wrote that line, erased it. (laughs) I put it back. If you don't get anything else out of this sermon, get this. Your salvation is not primarily for you. It is primarily for God and for His glory. The Son says to the Father concerning the cross, you get the glory. The Father says to the Son, that is exactly what I'm going to do. We are incredible, incalculable beneficiaries of the gospel work of Jesus. But make no mistake, we are secondary beneficiaries of the work that Jesus has done to glorify His Father by restoring honor to His justice. Romans 3 asks the hardest question in the universe, how can God remain God and forgive a sinner like you? How can he become your friend? And Romans 3's answer is that God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God has restored his honor in the forgiveness of sins because Jesus laid down his life as an adequate sacrifice that the justice of God required for him to be merciful to you. Psalm 8510 is a beautiful picture of everything I'm trying to say in one little verse. Loving kindness and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Where did God's righteousness and God's peace kiss? At the cross of Christ. Where, when you and I deserved a millstone to be dropped from heaven on our guilty head, God instead 
leans down, kisses you on the cheek, and drops the millstone on the head of his son. He does it so that he can forgive you without doing an injustice to his honor. Jesus brings glory to God in laying his life down as a substitute for sinners like us so that God's honor would be restored in becoming our friend. That's why I said earlier, if you get anything else out of the sermon, get this, your salvation is not primarily for you. It's primarily for God and his glory to put on vivid display, hyper-color, four-dimensional display, the manifold perfections of God. He and he alone could plan and execute such a redemption. Friends, verse 27 and 28 would do your soul a world of good and mine as well to marinate in with a heart full of prayer for hours and hours or however long it takes for you to begin to rejoice and worship in Christ's saving labors for you until we rejoice with Jesus that he laid down his life primarily for God and for his glory and then and only then for the everlasting benefit of our souls. And what is salvation? I said earlier, it's not God getting excited about you if you'll agree to get excited about him. So what is it? I've used this exact phrase so many times, many of you can finish the sentence. Salvation is God setting you free from your myopic self-centeredness so that you can join God in the happiest place in the universe, namely glorifying Him. It's being released from the shackles of self-worship and self-deification. Salvation is God setting you free so that you can actually be satisfied. And the only one who will ever satisfy you is the one who made you and saved you. This leads to our third and final point. Before a word of application, they'll come from verse 26, and the third and final point is this. Jesus is the God-revealing light. He's the worldwide Savior. He's the God-pleasing sacrifice, and he's the God-revealing light. This is verses 29 to 36. In verses 29 to 32, we get a glimpse of what happened immediately after the Father spoke from heaven. John wants us to know the crowds did not understand it. And if you remember Matt's sermons from the previous two Lord's days, you'll remember that nobody understood hardly anything that was going on except for Jesus. They didn't understand the triumphal entry. They didn't understand the anointing of Jesus by Mary. But Jesus knew. And right here he says in verse 30, this voice didn't come for my sake. It came for your sake. I take that to mean Jesus is totally on the same page with the Father that the cross is primarily for the glory of God. He doesn't need to be reminded of that. He knows and believes that. This came for your sake so that man-centered people would understand that salvation is not primarily about man, but about God. Jesus didn't need to be reminded about that, but they did. Verse 31 and 32 teach us that Jesus is not doing a pep rally so that people will get drummed up enough to believe it. He's just declaring it as a reality. Satan will be defeated, and the salvation of his people from all nations will be secured when he's lifted up on the cross. That's a fact. The ruler of this world will be cast out. 
And if I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. When I say Jesus is the God-revealing light, you'll see as the passage unfolds where, I trust you'll see where I'm getting that. I love the specificity of verse 32. Notice that when Jesus is lifted up and John tells us that he's speaking about the cross, verse 33, he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. That's what lifted up from the earth means. Notice the specificity of verse 32. Every commentary I consulted labored this point. It's so significant. If Jesus doesn't, uh, pardon me, in verse 32, Jesus does not draw people to his cross. He draws us to himself. The Savior who hung on the cross, the center of the cross, the point of redemption is the person who was suspended on that cross. As you'll remember, there was a guy on the left and a guy on the right, and neither one of those could save you or me or anybody else, but it's the person on the middle cross who does the work of redemption. And we could say it like this, if, you're, if you are being drawn by Jesus, you are being drawn to Jesus. Is that true of your life? Is Jesus the great attraction to you of Christianity? Is he the sum total, the, the whole salary package, if you will, of redemption, to have Christ, to know Him in the power of His resurrection and fellowship of His sufferings and being conformed to His death so that you too might attain to the resurrection of the dead. Some who heard Jesus say this thought they knew the Bible better than Him. They start saying in verse 34, hey, I know you're saying you're the Son of Man, but we read the Old Testament and said He's just going to live forever. How can you say you're going to be lifted up? They knew He was talking about His death. Maybe the Old Testament passages they're thinking about are the messianic prophecies of the Savior being an everlasting Father, mighty God. Maybe they're thinking of Psalm 72, a forever enduring Davidic King, or maybe other passages are in their mind, but we do know that they were excellent exegetes. They could quote the Bible to you, they could explain verses to you, and they never understood them. They had no clue that those good promises that they could recite perfectly about an ever-enduring Redeemer were totally misunderstood. They thought they understood it, so Jesus gives them His second sermon. It's in verses 35 and 36. This is why I say Jesus is the God-revealing light. He says to them in verse 35, for a little while longer, the light's among you. Walk while you have the light so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. If they couldn't trust him when he was with them, literally the light of the world was with them, there was no way they would trust him when he would be taken away from them. But I think he's also saying, you don't have much longer. Not only will I not be with you much longer, your little light span is about to be snuffed out. And some of the saddest words that could be spoken in any language is the combination of words in English that mean everlastingly too late. Too late. While you have the light, walk in the light so that darkness will not overtake you 
These people literally were looking at the light of the world and couldn't see. John has a lot to say about the themes of light and darkness in his gospel. He says of Jesus in him was life in chapter 1, and the life was the light of men. He calls him in John 1, 9, the true light which came into the world and enlightens every man. And in John 8, Jesus himself says, I am the light of the world. In John 3, we get something so close to John 12 in relationship of of lost people to, to the light of Christ. And it says in John 3, this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, but men loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed, but he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. You notice how you become one of those children of light, John 3, or walk in the light, John 12? Verse 36 is the answer. It's not do, it's believe. While you have the light, capital L, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. You believe in order to become. You don't clean yourself up and then come. You say, I can't do it. I can't see. I can't save myself. I can't even walk in the light. I can't even come to the light of the world in my own power. But I believe. And then the dungeon's flamed with light, and your eyes are open, and the scales are removed, and you see Christ for who He is, and the all-satisfying Savior that He promises to be. No sooner than Jesus declares that the hour has come for Him to glorify the Father in His cross death, He leaves. Do you see how this passage ends in verse 36? These things Jesus spoke, and He went away and hid Himself from them. He's preaching a silent sermon now. This is a parable. This is an illustration of what He just spoke about. D.A. Carson said, this is Jesus' self-conscious hiding from people. He's hiding on purpose. He was undisclosed in the first part. The Greeks are saying, can you, can you help us find Jesus? He's undisclosed in the first part. He's undiscoverable in the last part. This is a picture of judgment. You have the light. There's not a person in this room who can't believe the gospel now. You have the light right now. God commands you to repent and believe. You must turn from your sin or you will perish forever. You have the light right here. You have the light right now. And there's coming a time like Jesus did with these people where it's everlastingly too late. He's not only undisclosed, he's undiscoverable. They can't find him. They don't know where he went. Like we've seen so many times, they're ready to kill Jesus and Jesus just slips away. He dies on his terms, on God's terms, for God's glory. What's coming in our passage next week is Jesus is going to be in hiding And John's going to start explaining why nobody who reads the Old Testament so carefully in his day, all the Jewish adherents that are at the Passover and they think they understand the Bible so well, have no idea that Isaiah saw the glory of Jesus and wrote about the glory of Jesus. That's next week's passage. And John is saying, this is the judgment. You can't see the light. 
of the world. So today's passage is about a moment in Jesus' ministry that he had been waiting for his whole life. When the nations come to inquire of him, and when Jesus sees that the whole world, as it were, is proverbially coming to him, he knows that it's time to go and do for the world what the world could never do for itself, that is, to die the death we deserved and to rise again as the solid hope for eternal life for anybody who would repent of their sin and believe in him. I told you one word of application from verse 26, and this is it. Not only is Jesus the glorious whole world Savior and God-pleasing sacrifice and God-revealing light, this is what he is for believers. I'm talking to those of you who are Christians for just a moment. He's the whole life master. This is verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. It's literally the word deacon, deacon, deacon. If anyone deacons me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be, he will be. And if anyone deacons me, my Father will honor him. It's not talking about the church office, elder, deacon. It's not talking about that. It's talking about the Christian life, a willing servant. The primary way we're told here that we know how to serve and follow Jesus it is by listening to his Jesus-centered, Jesus-centered, gospel-focused voice in the Word. This harkens back to verse 28, the Father saying, here's my Son, and I'm going to glorify my name through his death and resurrection. You listen to the voice of God. The crowds didn't understand that. And then, as I mentioned, John's going to go into Old Testament passages next week and in our passage next week, and he's going to start explaining how they're so Jesus-centered and gospel-focused and about the glory of Christ and His saving work, and that's the primary way we know how to serve and follow Jesus. You see, the crowd just thought, all that sounds like thunder. All that sounds like unintelligible angels speak. Remember Paul said, if I have the tongue of men or of angels, that means they sound different. One you can understand, one you can't. These people didn't understand the Jesus-centered, gospel-focused reality of the Word of God. So the point John's making is they didn't know God's voice. So I close by asking, do you have ears to hear God's voice? Does God's Word, God's Word shape your life? If so, if you're really being shaped by the Word of God, I'm not saying totally misreading it like the people in this passage. If your life is being shaped by the Word of God, the evidence will be increasingly being drawn to the person and work of Jesus. It's a Jesus-centered, gospel-focused life. That's the evidence If I'm lifted up, I'm going to draw men to me, to me. He becomes the epicenter of a word-shaped life. So when the nations come to Jesus, he knew that his hour had come. He understood that he had been waiting his whole life for this moment. So dear friends, when you meet Jesus by faith, that means when you repent of your sins, when you seek his forgiveness, his cleansing, You ask Him to reconcile you to God. You trust His risen victory over sin, death, and Satan, and you say, I want all of your risen life in me. I give all of my life 
to you, then you'll finally begin to understand what life is all about. And perhaps some of you today will be able to say in the most significant way of all, I've prayed for this sentence. Perhaps some of you will be able to say today in the most significant way of all, I've waited my whole life for this. Because today, you'll give your life to Jesus, who died and rose again to make you God's child for God's glory. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we do ask that in these moments, you will cause us to resound with Jesus. Father, glorify your name. And you will cause us to delight in the voice of the Father that He has and is glorifying His name through the life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus and His soon returning, dominating victory. And we pray, Lord, that for time and eternity, we'll serve and follow Him, have our life shaped by His Word, and will be that fruit that Jesus died to purchase. Their life will be evidenced by the aroma of Christ. Help us, Lord. And I do pray that any who don't know Him would turn to Him by faith now. As we conclude in our service through welcoming new members and partaking in the Lord's Supper, oh God, oh God, allow us all to renew our faith in Jesus and our commitment to walk together in Christian love so that we can be the kind of people Jesus died to make us. We ask this for your glory in his name. Amen.